Hi, and welcome to Liberating Libraries, a project of the Conspiracy of Equality. My name is Blake. And my name is Caitlin. And if you want to know more about the Conspiracy of Equality, you can check out our website at liberatinglibraries.org. In this episode, we're talking about Swing Time by Zadie Smith. Swing Time follows the story of a young black girl and later woman in London and her relationships to her childhood friend Tracy, her activist mother, and later her pop star boss, Aimee. It's told from her perspective, though she is never named and remains a rather incomplete character on the page. She meets Tracy in dance class when they're young, and though their lives take wildly different directions, they keep looping back together. As a young adult, she's a PA for Aimee, who is building a school for girls in an unnamed African country. The story jumps around a lot in time, but is told largely as reflections by the narrator on different moments from her past. Although it's a bit confusing to summarize, it's a really intricate examination of power, class, race, and personal relationships under neoliberal capitalism. Okay, well, you wanted to start with these words that describe your feelings about it, which you have thought about and I have not, so... So, yes, you're right. Like I, as I was driving the bus one day, I was just like, what are the two words that you could use to describe Swing Time by Sadie Smith? And I think for her other books, that is not an easy task. And not that I think this is necessarily an easier task, but there were two that jumped out into my head. Like when I, every time I was thinking about this book, there were two that just really jumped out at me. And one of them is power. And the other one is ambiguity. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, and I know you have lots to say about both of those words. I know, amazingly <laughs> enough. <laughs> I did not think as deeply about two words because I'm a verbose person and you can't come up with two words for anything. But when I was when I was thinking about it, I was I was interpreting your question to be more about like how did the book make you feel in mm. a couple words and the one word that I could think of that, that really stuck with me was familiarity. And I think this is maybe just the difference between us as readers of this book. Um, like, for me, reading Zadie is always, and I'm going to call her Zadie because I'm a terrible person. And <laughs> Well, really, we're just best friends with Zadie. So. We are so <laughs> tight with Zadie right now. <laughs> I spend a lot of time watching her interviews and reading her stuff and thinking about the things she says. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that I just feel really, I feel like she's one of the writers, one of the few writers I've encountered in my life whose experiences feel really close to a lot of my own experiences, being mixed race, being brought up in a way that foregrounded education and foregrounded like striving for betterment and striving for achievement, but also then came up against all of the problems that race and class posed for those, for those sort of aims and, and goals. Um, so yeah, so when I, and, and I think Swing Time is the book that most felt that way to me. It just, there were moments in that book where I was reading it thinking this is so exactly like things that I have gone through. And it was just a very comforting form of familiarity, even at the same time that it was so uncomfortable and so grotesque at points to like grapple with. So our first piece of the conversation that we wanted to talk about is really about like how this book 
grapples with issues that I think Zadie Smith talks about in all of her books, but how maybe Swing Time does those a little bit differently, and particularly around its, its more explicit politics and its more explicit discussion about class and, of course, about the intersections of class and race. So I was I wrote in the notes about how like we've we've both read all of her all of her novels and we've both commented in the past how her first book White Teeth and some of her um, or her earlier stuff didn't really talk as directly about class and didn't seem to sort of unpack how class relations were impacting the the sort of choices that her characters had available to them and their reactions to things, but that more recently with Northwest NW and with this book Swing Time, she seems to have developed a really strong political voice at the same time that it's this beautiful fiction, right? Like it yeah. still remains really beautiful, compelling, ambiguous, as you said, ambivalent fiction, and yet it has a really strong political voice. So I think that's a good place for us to start. I think I would just agree with you. Like I think like especially like if you look at like On Beauty, I don't think the class politics are quite there because it's coming from like an upper middle class kind of like competition in an academic setting. Um, but yeah, like definitely with Northwest and Swing Time, there is this, it's yeah, it's really about the lives of the working class, but not just like kind of the lives generically like in, um, in White Teeth, but it's like she is, seems to be really trying to make an argument on class and the ability to move in and out of class and the ramifications that that happens and the limits that are available for individuals to do that mm-hmm. and i and i agree like i think it, it is new i don't necessarily new for city but i think it's just it's very clear especially in swing time what we're talking about that she tries to pose these different limits around class and race mm-hmm yeah, because I mean, the limits in White Teeth are very clearly there around race. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know. But I mean, she has talked in her discussions about Swing Time and about NW about writing them as stories about, in some way, what might have been. Because she grew up in, in Northwest mm-hmm. London. She grew up in, I don't know if she grew up in social housing, but she grew up in sort of that region in uh, surrounded by people who were living in different economic conditions living in social housing living in poverty whatever and and it talks about how both swing time and northwest are in some ways stories about the path that she might have gone down had she not gone down this path of getting accepted to cambridge and becoming a writer and becoming a very successful writer and a successful writer at a very young age very young age yeah um and yeah, and so so a lot of the characters in, in NW and in Swing Time, you can kind of see her writing, in some ways, alternative selves. Hmm. And I just think that's really interesting as a way for her to grapple with class, because it makes it not just sort of a, a bird's eye view of working class life, like you're saying, but rather an intimate sort of almost, it, it almost feels like it could be very painful to go through, like this intimate kind of like, what could have happened but i think that the biggest question that it raises is what she what is she ultimately saying about the possibilities of escaping Mm -hmm. or like leaving behind the barriers and boundaries of working class of, of being working class because there's a lot of emphasis in swing time on the sort of opportunities that education might afford to the narrator the main character or 
you know, how she's trying to build her career to go to get out of Northwest London. And it doesn't really work very well for her. I think the question that there was for me is how does Zadie actually feel about this neoliberal aspiration to become a successful individual and to move out of the, the boundaries of collective social groupings like class or race or gender or whatever by becoming a successful individual? So I thought it was really clear when I was reading it that she is, yeah, she, she's poking at it and just really pulling it apart and kind of, I don't know if I'd say destroying, but like she's being ambiguous about it at the, at the very least. And I think you can look at this through like kind of like the different lens. So like, right, you have the narrator who does get a job and, you know, for a small time, it's hard to say, well, she'd be successful. She's financially successful and living a very non-working class life. You have her mother who believes that education is absolutely everything. And that is the driving point for her to get her out of the council housing. And she does. She becomes a city councillor, and then she becomes, like, a member of parliament. But I don't think she's ever happy. I don't think, like, she, she ends up dying in the end of the book, and she dies alone. Like, there's nobody else around her. Her father, who at the start of the book is, like, middle management in the postal service, and he, like, has a fairly happy life. But then when the, uh, the narrator's mother leaves him... To try to win her back, he takes a lesser job to, like, be able to try to go to education. And it just ends up going really poorly for him. Like, he ends up being, like, quite poor and very unhappy. And then there's Tracy. And, like, Tracy does not live a good life. Tracy lives a very hard life. But at the end of the book, Tracy is really the only one who's happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, like, I think that's... I think that's kind of how she's playing with it, right? She's saying that, like, it's almost like this emphasis to become an individual, to become something that, trying to get away from what you think you are, you may find some type of success in it, and education might be the route through success, but that success doesn't guarantee your happiness. So I think I think that's how she's playing it, where it's just like, you know, the neoliberal aspiration to become all this is that you go to education, you'll get a better job, You'll be have more financial success, and you'll and ultimately you're going to live have a happier life. Mm-hmm. And I think for Zadie in this book, that's not what's happening. I think happiness does not come at all through education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree, and I think it's also interesting the way that she she points this out in sort of two parallel kind of criticisms or two parallel ways where you've got. The sort of the structural flaw of the neoliberal aspiration for the individual where it's like it's made very clear throughout the narrative that becoming that individual achievement or an individual success doesn't actually make the community any better right so um, the narrator's mother who spends all this time bettering herself in an effort to better her community and to in an effort to be to be the sort of political leader of change ultimately like runs up against 
the sort of this the intractability of a lot of those structures of capitalism like she herself can't actually run the revolution she herself can't overthrow everything and her individual betterment or the betterment of individuals within the community is not it, it, it's not enough but i think the bigger picture of that comes from amy right the story about there's this um, international pop star that the narrator becomes the one of the assistants to who is sort of modeled on this you know this figure that's very similar to Madonna or to someone Cher. like that, Cher, Oprah Winfrey, whatever, who tries to better the world by picking an individual isolated location of a problem and bettering that location, right? So we're going to build a school in this particular location as a way to better the situation of structural inequality and poverty in the world. And of course, that's a failure and is never actually going to achieve equality or liberation for anybody because even even for the people who end up getting better educations like their their possibilities that exist outside of that school remain structurally unequal and so there's that like that failure of the individual narrative of neoliberalism and but then what i think is really great about Zadie is the way that she brings that into these very personal intimate levels of failure where it's like it's failure on these very base psychological emotional like levels of being right like it's it's the failure of this narrative to actually reach our humanity in a sense because mm -hmm. and I think this goes back to the way in which the narrator isn't a character in the book right yeah. doesn't have doesn't really have a defined set of personality traits, doesn't have a name, doesn't have an, an identity that's really firmly established. And it's a lot of it seems to come back to this idea of like the failure of the things that she's grasping at to form her identity become this like this very personal vacuum of identity for her. Right. Like neoliberalism evacuates of us of our humanity on a very, very intimate way and in a very like societal way i think you're right like she doesn't really have that identity except when she has her interactions with tracy yes right and then like so when she meets up with tracy after all of these years of like separation there is always that kind of like she almost becomes a different person again and a person who can be more comfortable in herself and is almost uncomfortable more uncomfortable with the skin that she's in so I'm just thinking of when she goes on her like blind date that Amy has set her up on and sees that Tracy is acting in this play, like dancing in this play. And she forces this guy to go there. And like she's just enthralled by Tracy being up on this stage mm -hmm. that she kind of ignores like this other part of her life that like is happening because she just so desires being back in that space of like being back in and seeing this dance happening between her and Tracy. Or at the very least, desires the feeling of being a person that she got from yeah. being with Tracy. Yeah. Even though there's, like, problems with their relationship. Like, even when they're kids, there's, like, clear, unhealthy dynamics in their relationship. She's mostly, she is the most person she is in the book, right, when she's around Tracy. Yeah. And it's almost like there's a longing there, right? Yeah. Like, a longing to, to have that and the lack of possibility to fulfill it then the other piece of this um that i i wrote about was was how was amy's role 
in in this. So I'm, I was talking about how Amy is like a model or an example of these like the structural hole in our humanity, our impossibility of achieving liberation through neoliberal betterment and through capitalism, essentially. Which I'm not sure that Zadie Smith would ever use any of these words to explain what she means, I don't but think like she would either. it's there. <laughs> But then I also I also reflect on Amy being this like clear embodiment of white supremacy and the, the interconnection between white supremacy and neoliberalism, right? Because Amy is this white Australian pop star who sucks up the labor and love and energy of everyone around her, but also appropriates a lot of the labor and love of people of color. Mm. And particularly, you see this dynamic play out in relation to building the school in, an, it is an unnamed African country, I think, but it's supposed to be based on, I think, the Gambia, yeah. where like it's clear that she's also, at the same time that she's trying to do something good, and I put that in air quotes, she's also appropriating both the good feeling that that, that, that that comes from that, but also the like actual cultural content of the place that she's gone to. She takes dances. And, and the narrator explains that while, while they're in this place, she is very interested in all the different types of dancing that happens. Mm-hmm. So you see Amy actually take that into it, and she, she starts doing music videos and doing her own dances with like this West African feel to them. And she buys a baby, right? Yes. Right? Like, There's no other way to say it. She no, buys a baby. She, she buys a baby. It's adopted, in air quotes, but it's adopted through a purchase. Yes. <laughs> right? So, like, yeah, you actually see that where, yeah, it is, like, the literal her, like, taking on kind of, like, all of these things about this place that she's trying to help, which just in- betters her, right? Like, it actually enriches her and makes her more wealthier, Whereas what you're seeing in the community is that the, the government almost walks away from the community while, because like there's all this publicity going in and all of this great job. This is amazing. It's going to be a school for girls. But then the country is just like, well, why? Like we also don't need to do roads because she can just come in and fix the roads in your community. Or we're not going to actually better the schools for what are now going to be the boys because she can just do that, right? So, like, there is this, like, yeah, so she she does her own little thing, gets her own betterment while leaving it so much worse for the community that she's actually trying to help. So just a quick cut in. This is where we started linking the previous discussion to talking about the narrator and her relationship to her own relationships. And uh, we begin with a passage from the text. This is what I understood by it, that for Astaire, the person in the film was not especially connected with him, and I took this to heart, or rather it echoed a feeling I already had, mainly that it was important to treat oneself as a kind of stranger, to remain unattached and unprejudiced in your own taste. I thought you needed to think like that to achieve anything in this world. Yes, I thought that was a very elegant attitude, and I became fixated. Two, upon Catherine Hepburn's famous Fred and Ginger theory. He gives her class. She gives him sex. Was this a general rule? Did all friendships, all relations, involve this discreet and mysterious exchange of qualities? This exchange of power? Did it extend to peoples and nations? Or was that a thing that happened only between individuals? What did my father give my mother, and vice versa? What did Mr. Booth and I give each other? 
what did I give Tracy? What did Tracy give me? I think like with like so you get this so you get this this narrative from the narrator of her just kind of telling the story but not like it's almost like she's detached from the story that she's telling even though it's the story of her life um and like i think from that you almost get a sense of melancholy from the narrator mm-hmm. like it's just like she's just not happy and she like she's just trying to understand her life as to what has led her to this situation and, and again, if you're only seeing your life in power relations and you're only understanding all your relationships in power relations, like, where does that leave you at the end of it? Mm-hmm. And not just as power relations, as transactions. As transactions. Yeah. Right, which is this very capitalist way of understanding mm-hmm. our relationships to each other that we're just, we just have transactions with each other. And yeah. we measure our relationship based on either the cost-benefit analysis or the reciprocity analysis mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And, and it kind of goes back into, like, the idea of the neoliberal sense of, like, trying to become this individual greatness, that if all your relationships are just transactions, then you're always trying to get the better of the transaction, mm-hmm. right? Because you're trying to better yourself, not trying to figure out a way to better each other. And, like, Emmy absolutely does that. She uses all of her interactions with everybody around her to benefit herself. Mm-hmm. As, as we had just said whereas like the narrator it's like she doesn't know how to do that yeah but thinks that she she should be doing it and yeah. so feels like feels like very unsuccessful and unable to fulfill what she see what she thinks she needs to but then that doesn't actually fill her up with with any meaning either okay so this leads us to talking about this theme of power in relationships more broadly yeah. So you feel like the entire book is about power in relationships. Yeah, I do. Like, I don't know how you could read it and not see it about power in relationships, right? Like, the obvious one that we've talked about is Amy and her mother. But then you also have the, the power relationship between Tracy and the narrator, where Tracy is the one with all the ideas and without the fear of ever getting caught or getting in trouble with anything. Mm-hmm. And kind of like peer pressures the narrator into doing a lot when they were younger. Mm-hmm. When the narrator is older and Tracy is like harassing her mother as MP, where she has to go in and try to like calm, like get Tracy to stop doing this, you see kind of like a little bit of reversal there where the narrator sees herself as better than Tracy at this particular point. So like there, there's a power relationship there, which then again becomes inverted like later on. You have power relationships between the mother and the narrator. There are no positive power relationships. I think, like, maybe you could see it between the narrator and the narrator's father. I think they have a a better relationship of, like, a father-daughter relationship that's a little bit more equal and a little bit more understanding and supportive of each other that ends up falling apart because Tracy... Implodes it. Explodes it. it. Explodes it, right? Yeah. There's no, like, like I think it's all about power in these relationships that he's talking about. And, it, and it's power that's, like, just explicit of one power over the person, be it power of, like, manipulation or, like, the power to deceive and stuff like that. Or, like, the racial power, as we, like, talked about with Emmy and, like, her ability to collect all of these different people of color around her to, like, Im- Im- like make herself better. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what do you think of that? Like, So, like, do you not see the power, the different power relationships in the book? I, I definitely see it. I don't think, um, uh, I think I needed you and I needed Sadie Smith to tell <laughs> me that, to, to, like, point out the sort of, the continuity of that weave throughout the whole story. Um, because I don't think I, I necessarily picked up on it quite that way. Um, but I think it's so powerful once you, once I saw it, I was like, yes, that is what makes this make sense. (laughs) Um, and so it ties all of these, these stories together. And at first I was, I was like, doesn't this make it in some ways a very pessimistic book because like all of these all of these relationships are only able to be defined through power. And like, um, so in, in one of the interviews she's given about it, Zadie Smith has talked about how like a lot of what influenced writing the book was seeing all the clientelist relationships that exist in our modern economy. So where you have like, you know, um, she talks about how, or you have like young people working as interns basically for free for for wealthy and um, famous people because that they believe that they're going to get something out of it that's going to lead them to a better life. Mm -hmm. And then you also have like clientelism between countries or between celebrities and the countries that they use, right? Where it's like, again, like we talked about where they're using each other, but there's clearly such a power imbalance that the one side, the white supremacy side is always going to get more out of it. Um, And it's just like... Is that does that end up making it a very pessimistic book? But then, and then I was thinking about what you had written about the ending of the book, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's something really happy about the ending of the book. I mean, it's not happy because the narrator's mother dies and she chooses not to go visit her mother that day and instead go visit Tracy. I mean, she doesn't know her mother's going to die that day, but yeah. she chooses to visit Tracy. And the very last scene is her watching Tracy with her children just being happy and dancing. Yeah. And it's almost like you can almost picture nice end of movie moment where there's like this warm door open for the narrator to kind of like bring her bring her into herself almost. After all the shit that even Tracy was implicated in all the shit that happened to the narrator, but yeah. the door is just like there's this like warm door open with that scene of them dancing on the balcony. I don't know. What do you think? No, I think that's, like, I think that's really good. Yeah, which doesn't shock me that that's, like, how she, Sadie Smith would end it, being that it's based on swing time. Like, not based on swing time, but, like, so much of the 1930s and 40s movies (laughs) are, like, so prevalent in the movie. But, yeah, like, I think it's, like, because it is depressing. Like, the book is not a happy book, right? (laughs) No. Like, it's, it's, it's super depressing, and I think, like, you can see, like, I like the idea of the clientelism, I, like, like running through all these relationships. And you can see so much of that in the way we live. And it is such a product of neoliberalism. Well, it's the transaction-based relationship. It's the tra- yeah, it's exactly. It's the transaction-based relationship economy. The relationship between her and Tracy is so fraught. And the narrator is never happier than when she's with her and never more angry and upset than when she's with her and maybe that's real like like that type of like you like that is like a real relationship mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's the only real relationship that she actually gets mm-hmm. right so it, it's happening at the end where she's going back home like going back to the council estates 
And like I said, like I think we've said, there's so much of the book through the narrator's mother of this desperation to get out of these council estates as that's where you cannot be happy. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the book, she's coming back to this place where she shouldn't be happy. And there's this momentary lapse where she feels happy. She can look and see like, oh, this person who, you know, is living in the same flat that she did when she was growing up is happy. And and I think she finds some type of solace in that, mm-hmm. that she can figure out her own life. Mm-hmm. And I think there, and I like that. Like, I like that. Yeah, like trying to find that relationship that isn't based on a transaction. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think in neoliberalism, that is kind of a radical idea to try to find and build relationships that aren't based off of like, what am I going to get from this person? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like it's it's the radical notion that that we can and should seek out relationships that are non-transactional and that it's like it's not a romanticization of Tracy's life by any by any stretch like up to the very end we're very painfully aware of how rough life yeah. is for Tracy and how like her dreams were shattered yeah. right like she was on her way to being a dancer and it didn't work out for all kinds of reasons it's not the sort of, it's not the 1930, well, I, 1930s movies weren't exceptionally optimistic themselves, but like, <laughs> it's not the 50s movie or like the 90s movie where you, at the end of the movie, you go home and everything's going to be going to be great, yeah. right? It's not that, no. but it's, it's maybe a little bit of the like 30s sensibility of like, um, life is hard, but we can find joy in it. Hmm. Right? I think that's exactly what it is. Music for this podcast is by Ketza from their album Metamorphosis. You can find them at the Free Music Archive or at ketzamusic.com.